Well, this morning as we approach Christmas, we're taking a little bit of a break from 1 Peter 2. And this Sunday and next Sunday, we'll be looking at Luke chapter 2 and the king's birth in Bethlehem. On June 21st, 1982, a royal baby was born. His birth was announced with the traditional easel outside Buckingham Palace. And notice was made in the newspapers which read this. This evening at 9.03 o'clock, Her Royal Highness, the Princess of Wales, was safely delivered of a son at St. Mary's Hospital, Paddington. His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, was present. Her Royal Highness and her child are both doing well. A further statement from a palace spokesperson said this, The baby weighs seven pounds, one-half ounces. He cried lustily. The Prince of Wales was present. We have no names which we can announce at this moment. But this, of course, was the birth of Prince William. Prince William made his first public appearance the following day in the arms of his mother as global news cameras filmed the whole thing. But what was also interesting news about this birth of Prince William was that he was the first British heir to the throne to be born in a hospital. Every year on December 25th, we celebrate the birth of a king, our King Jesus. But his birth was different from the royal birth stories that we hear today. His mother and father were not well-known members of a royal family. There were no global news cameras capture his first waking moments. There wasn't a hospital for his delivery. In fact, there wasn't even a crib for our king to lay his head. In fact, it's a birth that I'm sure no mother would wish for. But what we're going to see from the scriptures is the story of how our king was born in Bethlehem. And so this morning and next Sunday, we're going to be looking at the king's birth in Bethlehem that is found in Luke chapter 2. And so if you haven't already, I would invite you to take your Bibles and open them to Luke chapter 2. And I'll read for us this wonderful account in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 says this, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. 
Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them, Into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Now, as I said, we're going to be looking at this passage here over the next two Sundays. This Sunday we're going to look at verses 1 through 7, and then next Sunday we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 20. And as we look at this whole passage here in verses 1 through 20, we're going to break it down into four points. Four points. We'll look at two points this morning, and then we'll look at two points next Sunday. But in order for us to understand what's taking place At the time that the king of kings was born, we have to look at what God was doing to prepare for this special birth. We find out what God was doing in verses 1 through 5, which leads to our first point here this morning, and what we will call the sovereign decree. The sovereign decree. Notice again what Luke says there in verse 1. He says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census that was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Now notice that Luke tells us here that it is in those days. You see that at the the beginning of verse 1. He says, Now, in those days. And 
That should cause us then to ask the question, in what days? What days are you talking about here, Luke? Well, it was in the days when John the Baptist was born, which is exactly what Luke was telling us back in chapter 1 and verse 80, where he says, and the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. That child that he's talking about there is John the Baptist. That John the Baptist was the forerunner for Christ. It's in those days that John the Baptist was born. But if we went back to chapter 1 and verse 5, we would read that Luke tells us that this is in the days of Herod, king of Judea. This is all happening in the days of Herod, king of Judea. So to help us understand the context of Luke chapter 2, let me tell you a little bit about Herod. Who was Herod? Who is this guy that we read about? Herod, the king of Judea. Well, Herod is also Herod, who is known as Herod the Great. Herod the Great, and he's the king of Judea during these days. But he ruled in Judea under the authority of Rome. He was under the authority of the Roman Empire. In 40 BC, the Senate of Rome declared Herod to be the king of Judea. He brought Jerusalem under his control in 37 B.C. and ruled over Judea from 37 to 4 B.C. 37 to 4 B.C. But if you study King Herod, you understand that King Herod was not a good king. He was not a good king. In fact, he was an evil tyrant who had ten wives and he'd even murdered one of them for no reason. He also had his firstborn son murdered for fear that his son would take his throne before he had died. He really lived as a terrified man. He was afraid that somebody was going to come and take his throne, which is possibly even why he had killed one of his wives. He's an evil man. He's also the same Herod that we read about earlier in our scripture reading who had ordered the murder of all the babies, the baby boys who were two and under around Bethlehem after the birth of the king of the Jews. Herod had heard that another king was born and so he wants all the babies in that area in Bethlehem and around Bethlehem. He wants all of them murdered. So they're killed. It's the same Herod. And so you have this evil king who is reigning in Judea in these days. When we read about in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, in those days, that's where our mind should go. It's in those days. But then in, in verse 1 of chapter 2, Luke tells us something else about those days. He tells us there that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Now we're introduced to another king. There's another king who is ruling and reigning during this time. This is Caesar Augustus. Who is this man? Well, Caesar Augustus was born in 63 B.C. and was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. 
At the age of 20, he was adopted by Julius Caesar. For whatever reason, Julius Caesar had an affection for him and adopted him. And Caesar Augustus was declared to be the heir to the throne in the Roman Empire. His original name was not Caesar Augustus, but it was Gaius Octavius. That was his original name. In 31 BC, he won a decisive victory over Mark Antony. And in 27 BC, he was eventually acknowledged by the Senate in Rome as Caesar Augustus. Remember, that wasn't his original name. But the Senate there in Rome acknowledged him as Caesar Augustus. Why Caesar Augustus? Well, Caesar means king, and Augustus means highly esteemed or honored one. So they declared him to be a highly honored king, Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus reigned over the Roman Empire from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. Thor, thank you for that, by the way, Thor, because it ties right in with what we're talking about this morning with the B.C. and the A.D. It's what helps us to our minds to be wrapped around that. And so he rules from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. And Caesar Augustus brought in the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana, which is Latin for Roman peace. Roman peace. Where he had essentially conquered the world and brought peace to the Roman Empire. In fact... About the time that Luke is writing this gospel here, this is sometime around A.D. 60, Greek cities in Asia Minor adopted Caesar's birthday, which was September 23rd, as the first day of the new year because they had hailed him as, listen to this, a savior. They had hailed Caesar Augustus as a savior. In fact, one historian even records that when Caesar died, men, quote, comforted themselves, reflecting that Augustus was a god and that gods do not die, end quote. They had to comfort themselves because they had put Caesar Augustus to the place of God, of being a god. And they know that gods do not die. And so Caesar Augustus was well respected as a leader. And he was so well respected as a leader that many saw him as a savior and a god. That's what's going on in those days. Caesar Augustus is reigning over the Roman Empire. Herod the Great is reigning over Judea. But those days, as we talk about those days, those days are not just random days. There's nothing random about this. In fact, Galatians 4.4 tells us, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Those days according to God, were the fullness 
of time. It was the fullness of time. The time when Caesar Augustus was king in the Roman Empire. And when you understand what's going on, then you understand why it would be even the fullness of time. You see, this was a time under the Pax Romana where Caesar Augustus had built a road system. A road system for travel which made it easier for the spread of the gospel throughout the land. And because it was all built under the Roman Empire, there were essentially no borders. There were no stopping points. People were free to move about in the empire, which made travel easier both by land and by sea. You also had, in those days, in the fullness of time, you also had a common language in the land of Greek. Culturally, Alexander the Great had made it a Greek world. And so Greek was the common language of the day which we then have the scriptures that are written in Greek, the common language. And so the spread of the news about the true Savior and God could be spread easier throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, James Montgomery Boyce said this, Great roads link the empire of the Caesars and its diverse regions were linked far more significantly by the all-pervasive language of the Greeks. Add the fact that the world was sunk in a moral abyss so low that even the pagan cried out against it, and that spiritual hunger was everywhere evident, and one has a perfect time for the coming of Christ and for the early expansion of the Christian gospel. So it was in those days. In those days when Herod was reigning as king in Judea and Caesar was reigning as king over the entire Roman Empire that God brought forth the king of the universe. And although Caesar thought that he was in charge of it all, he was wrong. He was wrong. God was sovereignly orchestrating all of this in order for his son, the true king, to come to earth to save us from our sins. In fact, listen to what Proverbs 21.1 says. It says this, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. God turns the heart of the king in whichever direction God desires to turn the king's heart. Because he's the sovereign one who's in control of it all. God is in charge of this entire situation. And he's sovereignly working out his perfect plan. In fact, notice what happens next. 
In Luke chapter 2 here, Luke then tells us that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. And what was the decree? Luke tells us here that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Caesar has a census taken in the, <coughs> excuse me, the Roman Empire. That is what is meant there by the inhabited earth. He's just speaking about the Roman Empire. Now, why a census? Why a census? Well, a census was taken either to register young men for military service or for the purpose of taxation. In order to identify who the people were for taxation purposes. And it was for the purpose of taxation that Caesar had issued this decree. How do we know this? Well, because Jews were exempt from serving in the Roman military. And so the fact that Joseph, who is a Jew, participates in this census tells us that it was not for military purposes, but it was for the purpose of taxation. Now, there have been many critics who have denied any record of an empire-wide census that was taken. But let me just say that there is great evidence that many censuses had been taken around this time throughout the empire. In fact, Daryl Bach says, non-biblical history knows of Augustan censuses in Gaul, Cyrene, and Egypt. So we know that there were censuses that were taken in the empire during this time. So it's, it's wrong to deny that a census was taken at this time because not only does historical evidence tell us this, but even greater evidence tells us this. The Word of God tells us this. God, right here in His Word, tells us that a census was taken. And because God cannot lie, there was a census that was taken. Luke then gives us a few more details here in verse 2, where he says this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now again, there's a, a lot of controversy over this verse here as well. Those who deny the inerrancy of Scripture will use this verse here to say that the Bible has an error in it because it's hard for them to put Quirinius as the governor of Syria around the time of Christ's birth, which would have been before 4 B.C. Okay, that's when Christ would have been born. Before 4 B.C. Why do we say that Christ was born before 4 B.C.? Well, because Herod the Great died in 4 B.C. He died in 4 B.C. But as we just saw, he was king in Judea when Christ was born. And so Jesus had to have been born around 4 B.C., but no earlier than 6 B.C. Again, we don't have the exact date. We celebrate it December 25th, but it's not the actual date of his birth. And we don't know the exact day of his birth, but it was sometime be between 6 and 4 B.C. But many historical records show that Quirinius 
was the governor of Syria from, listen to this, A.D. 6 to 9. Okay, we have historical record of that. The Quirinius was, was the governor in Syria from A.D. 6 to 9. And during that time, Quirinius did administer a census. In fact, Luke actually tells us about this census in Acts chapter 5 and verse 37. Acts is the other book that Luke wrote. Luke was a historian. He knew his facts. He knew his history. And he tells us of this other census that Quirinius had administered over in Acts chapter 5. So what do we do with this? If there's a census that's taken in A.D., from A.D. 6 to 9, when Quirinius is governor, but we know that Jesus is born before 4 B.C., what do we do with this? Well, first of all, God's word is true. Because as I said, God cannot lie. So we know that what Luke is telling us here is the truth, that Quirinius was the governor of Syria. But let me quickly give you just two possibilities for how we would understand this. Possibly, number one, the first possibility is that the word first there in verse two. Notice it says this was the first census taken. That word first there in the Greek is the word protos meaning either first or before. That's how you can translate that word there, either first or before. So it's possible that Luke is telling us that this was a census taken before Quirinius was governor, which would have been before A.D. 6, where we have the historical record that Quirinius was governor from A.D. 6 to 9. So it's possible that that's how we understand this. But a second possibility is that Quirinius was actually governor in Syria on two different occasions. On two different occasions. It's like President Grover Cleveland. Now you're getting a little historical, a little U.S. history this morning. President Grover Cleveland, he served as the president of the U.S. on two non-consecutive terms. He was elected in 1884 and then again in 1892, two non-consecutive terms. And so it's possible that Quirinius would have been governor between 12 and 2 B.C. and then again in A.D. 6 to 9. And the second possibility is more of the likely one. Rather than going to the Greek there, it's more likely that Quirinius had been governor on two different occasions. But we're confident from verse 2 that a census was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria because God's word tells us this. So yes, we can go back to historical records and all this kind of stuff, but you know what? Our God tells us it in his word and our God doesn't lie. He always tells the truth. And so we know that this is what happened. A census is decreed. And this, again, is important for us to know because although Caesar gives this decree, it is God who was sovereignly orchestrating all of this. In fact, notice what happens next in verse 3. 
Luke chapter 2 and verse 3 tells us, And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Now, there must have been a deadline imposed on this census. Why do we say that? Well, Joseph and Mary make the trip to Bethlehem while she was near the end of her pregnancy. If there was no deadline, they most likely would have stayed in Nazareth until after she had had the baby. But because of a deadline, they have to make the 90-mile trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem. 90 miles. Pregnant. And as we will see, they're technically married at this time. So it's possible that Joseph didn't want to leave Mary behind, to leave his wife behind, and miss the birth to go and register for this census. But because of this decree that's given, they have to go to the city where Joseph was from. And Luke then tells us there in verse 4, notice what he says. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. Now, if you were to look on a map, you would notice that Bethlehem is south of Nazareth. You can find maps on the back of, the back of your Bible and you would be able to see it there, that Bethlehem is south of Nazareth. But notice Luke tells us that Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth. How did they go up? They're traveling south. How did they go up? Well, the way that they viewed travel back then was not in direction, but in elevation, They always talked about travel in elevation. And even though Bethlehem was south of Nazareth, in elevation it was higher. And so they went up to Bethlehem. But why did they go to Bethlehem? Well, Luke tells us here that it was because he, Joseph, was of the house and family of David. Joseph would be able to trace his ancestry back to David, and so they had to go to the city of David in order to go and register for this census. Now, you have probably heard of Jerusalem being called the city of David, right? We hear that. Zion, Jerusalem, it's the city of David. And it's true that Jerusalem is the city of David because Jerusalem is the city that David captured and ruled as king. He ruled from Jerusalem. And so we would properly call it the city of David. But Bethlehem is known as the city of David because it was the city where David was born and raised. King David was born and raised in Jerusalem. Bethlehem. Now, when we think about the Davidic covenant, we go, whoa. All that was fulfilled, David, and what was promised to David, 
And then you look at the fulfillment of that covenant. Who is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant? None other than Christ, our King. So David was born in Bethlehem, just as our King, Christ, has born in Bethlehem. And so Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem because he was from the lineage of David. Some say it's because Joseph owned property in Bethlehem, but that's not very convincing since they never go back to Bethlehem to live and since when they arrive, they stay in an animal stall. But because Joseph is from the family line of David, he goes back to Bethlehem. And again, verse 5 tells us why they go back. Verse 5 says there, In order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Now, this is interesting here. Why does Mary go with Joseph? Why does she go with Joseph? Well, Luke tells us here that Mary was engaged to Joseph. But listen to what Matthew one twenty four says. Matthew one twenty four says this, And Joseph awoke from his sleep, after he had gotten a vision from the angel. The angel spoke to him in his dream. Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. He took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You see, after the Lord had commanded Joseph to take Mary to be his wife, Joseph obeys the command of the Lord through the angel, and he obeys this command, and he takes Mary to be his wife. In fact, to take Mary to be his wife would mean that he would take Mary into his home. He would take Mary into his home. And so although Luke tells us that they are engaged, a better way to understand the word that Luke uses here is to say that they were married without actually consummating the marriage. In fact, one commentator says about the Greek word that Luke uses for engaged here, he says this, it may suggest that the marriage is not yet consummated, not necessarily that they are not currently married. What's he saying there? Most likely what is going on here is that they are married. Mary is Joseph's wife, but they just have not consummated the marriage. Now, Let me just quickly help you understand how marriage worked back then because it's a little different than how our marriage works today. See, the Jewish custom for marriage is that marriage was arranged by the families, and I think we should go back to this. (laughs) Be a good idea. They were arranged by the families. When the children were between the ages of 12 to 14, maybe we shouldn't go back to that, but (laughs) between the ages of 12 to 14, they were betrothed. There was a betrothal that happened, which is different from our modern-day engagement. 
The betrothal was a legally binding contract where the groom would pay the bride price to the bride's father. This means that if during this time they were to call off the marriage, there would have to be a divorce. There would have to be a divorce. Why? Because it's legally bound. There's a legal binding that happens there. Which is why Matthew 1.19 tells us that Joseph was intending to divorce Mary after he found out that she was pregnant. And so that betrothal there is the first stage of the marriage where the husband and wife were legally bound to each other. But the groom didn't bring his wife into his home until around a year later. Where the groom would go and get his wife and they would have a big wedding feast. And it would be at this time then that they would consummate the marriage. But, as I said, Matthew tells us in Matthew 124 that Joseph obeyed the angel and took Mary as his wife, which means she would have moved in with Joseph as his wife, but they didn't consummate the marriage until after Jesus was born. And this is what I believe happened here in this story, and which is why Mary has to go with Joseph to Bethlehem. She goes because she's technically married to him. Not just betrothed, but they are married. They just haven't consummated the marriage yet. And as we saw in verse 4, Luke tells us that they go to Bethlehem. Luke told us that it was because Joseph was of the house and the family of David. But... There's another reason why they had to go to Bethlehem. And that's because it was prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. In fact, the prophet Micah tells us in Micah 5.2. We read it even in, in Matthew this morning in our scripture reading. Where Matthew was quoting from Micah 5.2. Listen to what it says. Micah 5.2 says this, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, that is you, Bethlehem, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. What's a ruler? King. King in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Who is that? None other than Christ. He is the only eternal God. That was prophesied by Micah that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. And so they have to go to Bethlehem not only because there is a decree for a census where they have to go and register, but because God has already said that His Son, the King, the ruler of Israel, is going to be born in Bethlehem. So where, they, where must they be? 
they must be in Bethlehem. Because God said that's how it's going to happen. And so, what did God do to get this pregnant woman in Nazareth to Bethlehem to birth the Messiah, as he said would happen? He has her marry a man from the line of David, which would be traced back to Bethlehem so that it would all line up that they would be in Bethlehem when the Savior is born. Then God uses a Roman king to decree that a census be taken so that this couple from Nazareth would have to make a 90-mile trip. Think about that, ladies. 90-mile trip while you're pregnant. Not in a nice, cozy, comfortable car. You're not taking a flight there. You're most likely riding on Donkeys or camels? 90-mile trip so that she could go to Bethlehem to give birth to the Messiah, the King. You see, this, this decree that was given wasn't just what Caesar wanted. It was ultimately what God wanted so that his word would be fulfilled and so that the king, the ruler of Israel, would be born in Bethlehem just as God said he would. And so that is the sovereign decree. Let's move on to our second point, point number two, what we'll call the humble delivery. The humble delivery. Look at verse six, notice what Luke says there. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. God's sovereignty is now put on display as the king is born in Bethlehem. Mary gives birth to Jesus. Not along the journey to Bethlehem, but once they arrive in Bethlehem. How long were they in Bethlehem before Jesus was born? We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. All we're told is that the days were completed for her to give birth, and she then gave birth. And then Luke tells us that she gave birth to her firstborn son. Firstborn. Firstborn here means that contrary to Roman Catholic teaching, Mary had other children. Jesus was her firstborn, among other children that she had with Joseph. Scriptures even tell us of brothers and sisters that Jesus had. So this is her firstborn son. But it also means that as the firstborn, Jesus had the primary right to the family inheritance. And because Joseph was of the line of David, ultimately Jesus had the right to the throne of Israel. Because he was the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and Israel's ultimate king. He was her firstborn son. Then we see here that the king of all creation entered time and space. And he came 
in humble circumstances. There were no cameras around. Didn't make the headlines in the Bethlehem news. There was no voice from heaven like what happened at Jesus' baptism. There was no angelic announcement throughout the city of Bethlehem. In fact, no angels appear here at the birth like they do to the shepherds who are outside of Bethlehem in the region. What do you have here? You have a a young woman and her young husband near her side in an animal stall in Bethlehem. This is a lowly birth. And yet we know that this is the birth of the king of the universe. What a humble king he is. And this is exactly what the scriptures tell us in Philippians 2.7. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He put on flesh and became one of us. The God who created us became one of us. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our Savior, the second person of the Trinity, is a humble man who took upon himself flesh and became one of us. This is not some grand entrance into the world. This is a humble delivery. A humble delivery. Now, let me just help you understand the scene here a little bit better. Notice in verse 4, Luke tells us, And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. If you have grown up either being in a Christmas play or going to watch Christmas plays, you've probably seen a character known as the innkeeper. The innkeeper. This poor guy gets a bad reputation at Christmas time because he didn't allow this poor pregnant woman and her husband to stay at the inn. What's wrong with you, innkeeper? Don't you have any compassion? But the reality is, this guy never existed. He actually never existed. Let me explain. Luke tells us that there was no room for them in the inn. That word for inn in the Greek is the word kataluma. Kataluma. This is the exact same word that Luke uses in Luke 22.11 for guest room. Guest room where Jesus and his disciples ate the Last Supper. Remember, they had to go and prepare the meal, and it was there in the guest room? In fact, this is how the Legacy Standard Bible actually translates it. It says, because there was no place for them in the guest room. What was that? Well, in those days, the kataluma or the guest room, It was either up on the second floor of the house or it was a second room in the house. But it was the place 
where honored guests would stay. Some of us, even today, have a a spare bedroom that's always ready in case guests would come to stay. That's the kataluma. It's a a guest room where the honored guests would come and stay. And so this place where Joseph and Mary were staying at was a regular home. It was a regular home. But it was crowded because of the census that was decreed. There were many people who came back to Bethlehem at that time because it was decreed that they had to go and register. And so, because this home where Joseph and Mary come to, which is most likely either a relative's home or somebody who's close to Joseph, because, remember, his family line goes back to Bethlehem, he would most likely know people that live there in Bethlehem. He would go to this home, and he would want to stay in the kataluma, the guest room, but they said, there is no room in the guest room. Make sense? The innkeeper never existed. They weren't knocking on hotel room doors trying to find a spot in the Motel 6. That's not what was going on. And Joseph wasn't coming in late at night, as is often told, to try and find a place for his wife and labor. Then goes to the inn. We have this heartless innkeeper who turns them away. None of that is happening. It's not what the scripture tells us. But what we do see in the text is that there's no room in this guest room, the place of honor. And so they most likely have to stay in the stall that would have been attached to the house where the animals were kept as people came, would come to Bethlehem with their animals. There would be a stall attached to the side of the house where the animals then would be kept. And they would, it would be on the lower level there. It would usually be just a little bit lower than the lower level. The animals would go in there and then they would be able to feed the animals on a manger, feeding trough. There wasn't any room for them in the guest house because it was packed. So the only room that was left in this home was this stall where the animals were. And yet even this was all orchestrated by God. It was all orchestrated by our God. Notice Luke tells us there that Mary wraps Jesus in cloths and laid him in a manger. Feeding trough that would have been in the stall where they were staying. Most likely the feeding trough would have been carved out of rock that would have been there on the side of that house. So we see these nice wooden mangers that are there. That's most likely not actually how it... I'm sorry I'm ruining all of your Christmas cards. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what's taking place here. And Jesus then is the king of the universe wrapped in cloths and laid in a manger. 
And even, as we'll see next week, there's a purpose even behind this as well. The amazing thing is that our king wasn't born in a palace with royal colors and a grand entrance. He was born in a dirty, smelly, uncomfortable stall where the animals were kept. But this is fitting for a king who humbled himself and who went to a humiliating cross to die for lowly, wretched sinners like us. Why did he do that? So that you and I, as we've been studying in 1 Peter chapter 2, could be royalty. So that we could be a royal priesthood unto our God. The king of all creation did that for us. What an amazing king we serve. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed that you, in your perfect plan, would send your son in such humble circumstances to be born in a stable, a stall, where the animals are kept. To come and save lowly, wretched sinners like us. Father, we don't deserve it. There is nothing good that we have done to earn your love, to earn salvation. Lord, we have all sinned against you, the holy and righteous God. But we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the humility of Christ who humbled himself and took upon himself flesh and then went to a humiliating cross to die for us, the King of kings, so that we could be royalty in him. Father, we thank you for our King. May we live our lives to worship him, to bring all glory and all praise and all adoration to our King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We thank you for your perfect plan for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.